Hi, everyone, and welcome to Focus Forward, an executive function podcast where we explore the challenges and celebrate the wins you'll experience as you change your life through working on improving your executive function skills. I'm your host, Hannah Choi. We are back after our summer break. Yay! Today's episode is super special. Not only is it our first episode of season three, but it is also our 30th episode. I know there are podcasts out there with hundreds and hundreds of episodes, but I just have to say I'm super proud of this achievement and I'm so glad you're here with me today to celebrate. On top of all that fun stuff, it's also ADHD Awareness Month. In today's episode, I'm going to share some of my own ADHD story, which all started when someone very close to me was diagnosed a couple years ago. Hearing their story got me thinking about my own life experience through an ADHD lens. I recorded the ADHD episode and have a and excuse me, had a couple clients whose challenges I could relate to more than just a little bit of a coincidence. Dr. Sherry All, the star of the Focus Forward episode 16, all about memory, connected me with Dr. Jan Willer, a licensed clinical psychologist who lives in Chicago, and she has written two books for practitioners, Could It Be Adult ADHD and The Beginning Psychotherapist Companion. I thought Jan would be a great person to talk with. Jan and I recorded twice, once back in January and the second time just last month in September. The first time we talked about ADHD and what it is and then spent a while talking about my own experience and symptoms. In September, we met again to reconnect and talk about the post-diagnosis experience and how people can both support themselves or the people they love who have ADHD. So today's episode is all about ADHD, and because it's ADHD Awareness Month, I hope my story helps someone out there find the confidence to go get tested. As you'll hear, it has been a positive and life-changing experience for me. So first up is our conversation from January. Hi, Jan. Thank you so much for joining me on Focus Forward. Hi, Hannah. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. This is take two, right? <laughs> we tried last week, but my um, I'm a migraine person and my migraines got in the way. So I'm glad we're able to do this today. I'm glad I'm migraine free today. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So we are going to talk about ADHD in adults and um, what that experience is like for people and how they got there. Um, and so can you share a little bit with our listeners about why... Um, about why I'm talking to you about ADHD? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, well, I've been interested in ADHD for a good while. And actually, a number of years ago, um, a psychiatrist that I would refer to would start referring adult ADHD clients to me just kind of out of nowhere. And at that point in time, I didn't know very much about ADHD in adults. And just as a little sidebar, graduate schools usually don't teach very much about mm. adult ADHD. And so every mental health professional out there who knows much about it has taught themselves and you know gone to seminars and that type of thing. Uh, but anyway, so I started teaching myself about it and the more I learned, the more interested I became. And, you know, it's just a population of folks who really are under treated a lot of the time and 
a little education and a little help with executive functioning issues can go and maybe a little bit of medication can really go a very long way in terms of helping people feel better and feel like they're functioning better as well. I, I see that in the clients, the adult clients that I've worked with, um, where they have experienced exactly that. <laughs> they, a little bit of medication, a little bit of executive function coaching, and just like a lot of knowledge. It's really mm -hmm. made some big differences. What are, what brings someone, what are the questions that people have when they um, come to say, like, I think I might have ADHD? Well, a lot of the time people will come to me and they've already been wondering about whether they have ADHD for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and many people um, who've had ADHD their entire lives were not diagnosed as children. And it used, you know, back in the old days, it used to be thought that if it wasn't really obvious as a child and the child wasn't pretty impaired from the ADHD, then a person who is an adult couldn't possibly have ADHD. Now we know now that that's not true because there's a, a lot of folks who don't de get diagnosed for various reasons. Um, maybe because they just had inattentive type ADHD and they were well-behaved kids. And so, and they were, you know, pretty smart and they just kind of flew under the radar and their grades weren't amazing, but they weren't disrupting the class and they were just kind of daydreaming and, you know, nobody really noticed that they were having some learning issues. Hmm. So a lot of the time, those are the folks that kind of end up coming to us. But also sometimes people may have had some hyperactivity as a kid, but their parents and their schools really recognize that they need a lot of exercise. And so they would get put into sports and all kinds of camps that gave them plenty of exercise. And then so, so they coped okay and they didn't have behavior issues. So, um, you know, in the past, most of the folks with ADHD who are identified as children were people who had behavior issues and usually white boys as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we realize that anybody could have ADHD. And, and, and I think that is that information has gotten out into the popular consciousness. And so people are soaking that up and going, oh, wow, maybe I have that. That sounds kind of like me. I just <laughs> yeah. thought it was a fly I had, but maybe I right. have ADHD. So something that I've noticed just in my observations of people talking about if they have ADHD or if they wonder if they do, I have noticed, um, and I think that there is a stigma around, around it, around being diagnosed with it and around having those challenges. Um, do you see that in the people that come to you? Do you, do they express those hesitations? You know, I think it varies a lot by the age of the person. Um, because it, it seems like, you know, young adults, are much more knowledgeable about mm. people who are neurodivergent and often seem to have a lot less stigma about that. You know, they understand that people, some people have ADHD, some people mm. are autistic. It's, you know, it's not necessarily such a big deal to them. It's just more a recognition of individual differences. Mm. Um, but for people who are 
you know, middle-aged and older for sure, and possibly also younger than that. It kind of depends on, you know, the environment the person grew up in. There often did grow up at a time where there was a lot of stigma about having ADHD, and there were a lot of stereotypes about people who had ADHD, which were often wrong. Mm-hmm. And there may not have even been an understanding that ADHD lasted to adulthood. And so they've often just internalized a lot of shame about some of their life challenges that are very, like, completely related to ADHD. Can you just talk a little bit about what ADHD is for any listeners who might just kind of have like a surface knowledge of it? And maybe we can help any listeners who might be questioning whether they they might and then maybe some um, maybe you could share like some symptoms or some characteristics that aren't necessarily fully known. I mean, the, the name of it, ADHD, like is attention deficit hyperactive disorder. But like you said before, many people can have ADHD, but be the inattentive type. Mm-hmm. So can you maybe just share a little bit about what it is? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the first um, type of symptom of ADHD that was really recognized was the hyperactivity. And, you know, if you've ever seen a hyperactive kid, that's pretty obvious. I mean, that's a kid that's just bouncing off the walls, full of energy, maybe really talkative. Um, And so, and then over time, it became clear that a lot of those kids also had some challenges with paying attention, despite, you know, in addition to their high energy level and tendency to bounce off the walls. Um, And then it became clear that there were kids who had the inattentiveness alone. They didn't have the hyperactivity, but they still had a hard time paying attention consistently, mm-hmm. especially in school. And that was kind of where it was the most obvious. But, you know, sometimes at home too, their parents would say, do this or that. And they just kind of lose track of it, didn't really absorb mm-hmm. that information. Um, or procrastinated, which can be a symptom of ADHD too. Um, and then Uh, you know, as things went along, people started to recognize that for most people, they do not grow out of ADHD. Mm. Most ADHD does last to adulthood, not every single one, but most for sure. Mm. And as they recognized that ADHD lasted to adulthood, they would see that adults with ADHD had a lot of executive functioning problems. And I'm Mm. sure that your listeners have a good understanding by now of what executive functioning problems are. I hope so. (laughs) So I'm not going to go into detail about that because I'm sure you've covered that in a lot of different podcasts. Yeah. Um, And the, they actually, many experts actually consider the executive functioning problems to be more disabling for Mm. people who have ADHD as adults than either inattention or hyperactivity. Yeah, right, and I would see that too. Sure, and when you look back at people who have ADHD as adults, it turns out that the executive functioning problems are a lifelong problem. They're just less obvious in kids because with kids, um, a, the adults in their lives, be it their teachers, mm. their parents, you know, other, other adults will structure their lives for them. And so they don't have to do as much executive functioning as an adult does. Right. 
And often when people who have ADHD go off to college or leave home for the first time, they may, they often do have a lot of struggles initially because they're not used to doing their own structuring for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I see. And most of my clients are college kids and that's exactly what I see <laughs> every, pretty much in every, every client, like, wow, a lot of things were structured for me in, in high school. And I mm -hmm. thought that I could, you know, just keep up doing the same thing once I got to college and then wait a second, it's not exactly working out as I thought it would. Yeah. yeah and things can really fall apart pretty fast because mm -hmm. nobody's telling them to get up and people right. who have ADHD have a tendency to be night owls. Mm -hmm. And so, and especially, and sometimes it's so extreme that they could even get a diagnosis of delayed sleep phase disorder, oh, wow. which is a sleep disorder. Mm. Um, and so that difficulty getting up to go to things, you know, mm -hmm. stay up till three in the morning, hanging out with friends, playing video right. games, whatever, you know, and then they don't want to get up until 11 and class was at 930. Yeah. Yeah. So there can be a lot of different pieces to the difficulties that college students can have. I know a big part of um, ADHD for kids and adults, um, but maybe we can talk about adults here, is this self-regulation and emotional regulation. Um, how, um, how does that show up? How, what do you see in your practice? Yeah, I mean, that is indeed a, a common problem. And about half of people who have ADHD as adults do have this emotional dysregulation problem. And what it consists of is when people have something stressful occur, they tend to be especially reactive to that. Mm -hmm. um, and it could be just kind of ordinary stuff like somebody cutting you off in traffic, or it could be something bigger like, you know, some family crisis or something. Or, mm -hmm. you know, just a minor change, like, um, you know, they were looking for peppers in the refrigerator and they didn't have any and they were going to, that was going to be a key part of what they're going to make for dinner. And so these stressors, whether they're big or even little, can lead to some pretty intense emotional reactions for the person. Mm -hmm. And the person can feel irritated and frustrated and aggravated and you know, depending on the individual, some people have kind of learned to hold all that in because they've realized mm -hmm. that other people don't react well yeah, when they're yeah. next to somebody who's really, you know, having an outburst about a minor stressor. Mm -hmm. But other people don't have the, you know, ability, at least in that moment, to hold that in and may have, you know, a verbal outburst or a temper outburst or something in response. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be you know, really challenging for the person because, you know, they look around at everybody else and they're like, wait a minute, these other people are having stressors too, but I'm reacting somewhat differently from them. Hmm. And again, this is sometimes where the shame or embarrassment can yeah, come in right. because the person then feels bad about themselves for having mm -hmm. a strong emotional reaction when other mm -hmm. people might not. Yeah. But unfortunately it, it can be a part of, of their ADHD struggle. That's so interesting. I didn't ever know that, that, that how closely connected that was to ADHD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it's, really should be a symptom that yeah. is in the mm -hmm. official diagnostic mm -hmm. manual, mm -hmm. but it's not. What are some other symptoms that people might not know about? You know, that's a really good question. Um, one symptom that I actually see all the time 
is that often people who have ADHD have a really hard time getting to sleep. Mm-hmm. And they lie down in bed and they're ready to go to sleep and their brain just starts going mm-hmm. and going and going mm-hmm. and it's very mm-hmm. active. You know, folks who don't have ADHD when they lie down to go to sleep, their brain is kind of like slowing down and mm-hmm. not very full of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as they're not stressed or anxious about something. Yeah. Right. Um, but a person who has ADHD, their brain just tends to be act very active all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not true for everybody, but it's true for a very large proportion of people who mm-hmm. have ADHD and, and their brain's activity will keep them awake and they, may stay awake for an hour when they're trying to go to sleep with their Mm -hmm. brain just churning over all kinds of different stuff. The default mode network is a network that, so the brain has many different networks of connectivity and the default mode network is one of those. And they call it that because they, people used to think that if you weren't doing something, then your brain wasn't thinking about Mm. anything. Mm-hmm. Now, anyone who has tried to meditate knows that that's ridiculous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because if you're not doing anything, which is what meditation is to some extent about, your brain is full of ideas and thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the default mode network, kind of churning up ideas and thoughts about your life and how, what's just going on with you, what you plan on doing, just any old random thoughts about your life. And that area does tend to be extra active in people who have ADHD, which is, I like you're pointing out, the connection to the sleep onset problem. Yeah, right. Also, that area is supposed to be kind of quieted down mm-hmm. when you're working on a task. But mm-hmm. that, since that area tends to be extra active in people who have ADHD, often one piece of their challenges with distractibility is that they are distracted by their own thoughts when they're trying Mm, to work mm -hmm. on things. Right. And so they're really trying to focus, but their own thoughts are interrupting their Mm -hmm. thought process. Mm -hmm. And a final thing that is probably related to the default mode network and ADHD is that people who, there's a little bit of research. Unfortunately, there is really isn't enough research on the positive aspects of ADHD, Mm -hmm. but there is a little bit of research indicating that people who have ADHD tend to be more creative than the Mm -hmm. average person and tend to be really great at brainstorming and thinking of lots of ideas. Yeah, I was reading about that and, um, and uh, the article was saying that it may be because they're um, able to, I'm not going to remember the whole brain part of it, but, um, they're able to make connections that might not necessarily be able to be made by someone as easily if they don't have ADHD. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of yeah. That does seem to be a there. part of the creativity yeah. of the ADHD yeah. brain for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, it's interesting that is that's one thing that you said was like, not everybody experiences that um, be, not being able to fall asleep bit. So what do you think when, when like not everyone with ADHD has all the same symptoms and mm-hmm. like, what, do you know why that is? <laughs> and no, it's just probably cause we're just all different, <laughs> but it's so interesting yeah. that some people can quiet their default mode network and then others can't. Yeah. It is kind of fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, 
I mean, I think that part of that has to do with the fact that ADHD, there's no one gene that ADHD yeah, is carried right, on. Right. There, there's a lot of research about genetics and ADHD, and a lot of it, honestly, is way too technical for me. But yeah. I can read enough of it to understand that there are, you know, dozens of genes at least that affect okay. whether a person has ADHD. Uh, okay. And if so, to how, what degree? Yeah, because some people have a lot of ADHD and some people right. have a little bit and some people have none. So right, right. And that, you know, plus everybody has a different life that they've been through was raised a different way. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I see people with, you know, pretty significant ADHD symptoms, but they have no problem keeping track of their calendar because mm -hmm they've had folks working with them their whole life about how important that is. And they've really got right. the skills down. Right. So. Yeah. I imagine like so much of your, about, of how your ADHD affects you as an adult is decided by um, just the strategies and the skills that you've learned and the awareness that you have um, of yourself and of the impact that your behaviors have on your life and on others. And, and with kids, it's harder for them because they, they haven't learned that yet. They just haven't been around long enough to, to kind of know that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with my client, adult clients, I don't work with kids. Um, yeah. I tell them that one advantage that they're bringing to working with their ADHD is maturity. Yeah, right. Because having that insight into how some of these challenges of ADHD have affected their life negatively mm -hmm. provides a lot of motivation to work mm -hmm. on. I interviewed um, Nancy Armstrong, who was the executive producer on a, um, a documentary called The Disruptors. And, um, and that her documentary really highlights it, it it definitely explores the challenges and it also highlights the positive side of ADHD and that's so and cool. their work yeah it's 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 a great it's a great watch um they're working really hard to dispel a lot of the myths around ADHD and and help people find the positives so in your opinion what are some of the positives well we've already mentioned a lot of them right the Artistic creativity can be one of them, the out-of-the-box thinking, being mm -hmm. more of a divergent thinker who's able to connect a lot of different things. Um, I think that because of people having that out-of-the-box thinking, they're often really valuable team members. Mm. And, you know, I personally, of course, I have no proof of this, but my personal belief is that the reason that the genes for ADHD survive in the population is because it's so helpful in any group of people to have somebody who is really creative and full of yeah. all kinds of ideas and right. thinks about things in a really different way. And, you know, to some extent that might be true of autism as well. So it's really interesting talking with you and and I know it was our conversation that we had the other day before we came on and and all the um research that I've been doing and all the clients that I've worked with I'm realizing the more and more I read and the more and more I talk with people that I really think that I probably have or had like had as a child and still have the inattentive type so much of um of what 
I've read and just things that people have said, I'm like, oh my God, that just, I feel validated when I hear that. And so it makes me wonder, you know, maybe that was something that I could have gotten help with as a child and, and, and can still now, like as an adult, find things that help me. I mean, I'm sure that you've heard a lot of people come into your practice and say something similar. Absolutely. Okay, so in the interest of time and potentially embarrassing myself more than I'm comfortable with, I'm going to stop the recording of our conversation here. Right after this, I asked Jan if she'd be open to talking with me about my own challenges. We talked for a while about my life and what I struggle with and why I think I might have ADHD. It was pretty eye-opening and extremely validating. She encouraged me to get a formal diagnosis from someone in my state. After chatting with Jan, I set up an appointment with my primary care physician, who is an internal medicine doctor. I was really optimistic on the appointment day, but things didn't go as planned. I was reminded of something that Dr. Teresa Cerulli said about how internists will not usually entertain a conversation about ADHD and will generally refer you to a psychiatrist, which is exactly what mine did. Feeling deflated because I knew a psychiatrist fee would be greater than what I could afford, I remembered my own advice to clients. What would this look like if it were easy? So I reached out to Jan again for more guidance. Do I need to see a psychiatrist? Is a full neuropsych exam necessary? And who else can I consult besides my doctor? Jan assured me that a full neuropsych exam wasn't required. She explained that due to the shortage of psychiatrists available for ADHD support, other providers can diagnose it without a full neuropsych exam. And this boosted my confidence to search further. And then I found a local psychiatric nurse practitioner online through psychologytoday.com, which is a great resource for that kind of stuff. We met for over an hour. She asked me all about my health history and my childhood, my college years, and my current challenges. And we went through the adult ADHD self-report scale together, which was hilarious. (laughs) I kept bursting out laughing at many of the questions because it was me, but on paper. And I kept wondering, was the person who created the scale living in my brain? Initially, I wasn't sure I wanted to use medication, but after learning about the ADHD brain and how it works, I was more open to it. I remembered something else that Dr. Cerulli said, at least have the conversation about medication options. Whether you use them or not is up to you, but have that conversation. I also felt confident trying medication because I already did all the things you're supposed to do, right? I eat well, I get a lot of exercise, my sleep habits are good. I had created systems that work really well to support myself in the EF areas that I struggle with. But honestly, I was exhausted forcing myself to use them all the time and not being as successful as I probably should have. And honestly, I was being pretty mean to myself inside when I struggled. So something had to change. So I decided to try using ADHD medication. I knew I wasn't interested in stimulants because I wasn't sure how they'd work with the anxiety that I already dealt with. And considering my history, Sophia prescribed the non-stimulant Welbutrin initially. It actually worked really well, but unfortunately, it increased the number of migraines I was having. And 
interestingly, there is a connection between migraines and people with ADHD. And I actually have an appointment with a, um, with a neurologist coming up, and I want to ask more about that and learn more about that connection. So anyway, I switched to another non-stimulant called Stratera, and that's actually been working great. It's made a huge difference in reducing the constant chatter in my head. Until it quieted down in there, I seriously had no idea how much noise I had in my brain all the time. I've also noticed that it's so much easier for me to get started on my work and get back to it if I get interrupted. And I can also stay focused on my work for longer periods of time. And following through on stuff that I don't want to do is not so painfully difficult anymore. And I remember Bob Shea telling me that his meds make it easier to use all the tools he had already implemented. I agree, Bob. I completely agree. I've spent a lot of time reflecting, you know me, I love that self-reflection, and thinking back to choices that I made and things that I did that were likely because of ADHD. I've been reading and listening to podcasts and talking with people about their ADHD, and I am learning so much. I decided to reach out to Jan again to talk with her about what comes up for people once they've been diagnosed and what supports will help. We met just recently to record and realized it had been almost nine months since we first talked. Let's check in to hear what we talked about. So um, when we last talked, I uh, asked you about my own experience with ADHD, um, and I really am grateful to you for taking that time with me to walk me through that um, a little bit uncomfortable and a little scary conversation. And um and it's just such a great example of this idea that when we step outside of our comfort zone, we end up finding magic and, um, and discovering things that we never knew or we knew about ourselves, but we didn't like have words for it. Right. And right. it's just been, Ooh, I got chills. It's <laughs> really actually been life-changing and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. So thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I do find that a lot of people really appreciate knowing that they have ADHD mm-hmm. because it has so much explanatory power for what people have been struggling with. Mm-hmm. And like you said, sometimes people don't even have the words yeah. for all of their struggles. Mm-hmm. So being able to talk about it with a professional and, have that person say, oh, well, people who have ADHD often struggle with this and this and this and kind of give give the person the words and the ways to conceptualize mm-hmm. it. And then they're like, yes, I do that. And yes, I have that problem too. And yes, that's so hard for me. Um, really can kind of make a difference in terms of the person understanding themselves and being able to communicate with their loved ones and people they work with, even mm-hmm. whether they come out about having ADHD or not, they can still say things like, it really doesn't work very well for me to have yes. a lot of interruptions when I'm trying to work on a project. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a that's a great point that you brought up and something I wanted to um to talk about is that whole, um, you know, disclosing at work type of thing, 
because so I, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I work in a job where, um, you know, it wasn't even uh, an issue for me to disclose. They were just like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> What's next? Um, you know, and then, um, and, and in fact, it, it probably really helps me as a coach to know, um, and to relate with my clients even more. Um, and, and so I'm very lucky that I work in an environment that is not only extremely accepting of neurodivergence, but also we are in like the literal business of supporting people who are neurodivergent. And then, you know, there's, there's other people who may, may not feel safe disclosing that at work. And um, so I really love that, that, that suggestion that you gave just then of how you can disclose your needs without necessarily disclosing your diagnosis. How do you support um, client, your clients who come to you with that struggle? Yeah, well, you know, everybody who has ADHD is a little bit different. And so, you know, it depends on some people work better at home. Some people work better in the office. It kind of, each person has different situations where they concentrate better. Um, Sometimes if people do better in the office, that also certain areas of office are too noisy or distracting. And so they need some help with that. Um, on occasion, I have written accommodation letters for people. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always work 100%, but usually they are able to do something that's helpful to the person. Mm -hmm. um, like I had someone I was talking to once who's cube was right by the copy machine and you can oh. imagine how distracting that would be yeah. for anybody much less a person who has ADHD and they were able to get moved to an area mm. that was a lot quieter and that made all the difference in terms of being able to be efficient at work yeah and I imagine a big part of it is self-advocacy and uh, being brave enough to speak up about it. So having someone like you to maybe work through a script or um, just kind of talk out what an accommodation might be helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that is a big, a big part of, of people's experience. Right. And, you know, people can kind of take two different approaches to that. I mean, one is kind of the official HR approach. You know, mm. I'm going in, I want reasonable accommodations for my ADHD, which legally is considered yeah. a disability, even though, you know, people can discuss whether they could consider it that way or not. Right. Um, and so that's one approach. And the other approach is to say, okay, to think about, well, how is my... ADHD interacting negatively with the work mm. environment and how can I verbalize what my needs are if I don't feel comfortable or the HR situation isn't optimal in a way that people can hear it and might be willing to work with me on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A more kind of informal approach. Mm -hmm. And I bet when you have an, like, I imagine maybe like before someone gets a diagnosis, they still are aware of what their challenges are. Maybe after they get the formal diagnosis, they're like, oh, okay. It might give them some confidence to, to ask for what they need. There's, there's an actual reason why they need that. It's not just that they're like bad at it. <laughs> they're, you know, there's a right. real reason. Yeah. Right. And I think you're bringing up a really important point is that a lot of people you know, like yourself, managed to kind of fly under the radar their whole life. 
and they knew something was going on. They knew they were somewhat different from everybody else, but it often tends to be very internalized. Mm -hmm. And the person tends to feel like, well, I'm struggling and all these other people aren't struggling. Therefore, there is something wrong with me. And so that, you know, that then they just kind of end up what doing what many people call masking, which is trying to pretend that there isn't an issue, even if they are struggling. And mm. a lot of people can be very successful at pretending that yeah. even though, even if, though inside they're really feeling kind of miserable about it. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a an, an internal cost that is, it's maybe not visible, but they, they are feeling it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that reminds me of, um, we, we recently did a, a webinar about ADHD and about for people who were newly diagnosed and, or curious. And, um, a, a parent asked about their child who was, I can't remember. I think he was like older teen, young adult, kind of college age. So the parent said, uh, he had just been diagnosed and was feeling like it was a negative thing. And, and, um, and she was wondering how we could, uh, or how she could support him to learn about, about it and uh, maybe see it in a more positive light. And it just made me think like, he's probably spent a lot of his life internalizing all of those things. Then you find out, oh, there's a reason for it. Oh, then this must be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So how do you um, support people who or how can we, even our listeners, if we have people, you know, loved ones in our lives who have been diagnosed, um, how can we support them um, in seeing that it's not all bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple ways to look at this. I mean, one way to look at it is to say, well, you know, uh, if you if you think about it from a disability perspective, which is, you know, one angle to look at things is to say, okay, well, it's a disability that makes it difficult for this person to learn in certain situations, difficult for the person to work in certain situations, take information in it at times, you know, all kinds of other challenges that can come up with that. But does that, does that have to be viewed in a negative and judgmental way? Right. You know, the brain is an organ, too. The brain, you know, can have issues just like any other organ can have issues. And so in a way, that's one way of conceptualizing ADHD um, and thinking about it in terms of not having stigma towards a person who has an illness or a disability or something like that, because nobody deserves that. That's, yeah. you know, that's ableism and that's, that's yeah. just wrong. So. Another way of thinking about it, which I think is is equally valid, is thinking about it in terms of um, being neurotypical versus neurodivergent. And so, you know, when we think of people who are neurotypical, we're typically talking about a person who doesn't have ADHD and a person who doesn't have autism. Mm. And so those folks, you know, the world is built around people who are neurotypical is not built to accommodate people who are neurodivergent. Right. And so that's part of the difficulty that people who are neurodivergent have is that it's just not, it's not built for how their brain operates. 
operates. Nothing is built for how their brain operates. And the things that are valued don't tend to be the things that the people who are neurodivergent had to offer. So for example, um, some of the things that a person who's neurodivergent have to offer are their, their incredible ability to be really interested and passionate about things and just really dig in and get into something and understand all the incredible connections between their to- that topic that they're into and everything around it. They're great at understanding things in a network kind of mm-hmm. interconnected way, mm-hmm. whereas kind of, and this is so obviously a little oversimplified, but yeah. a person who's neurotypical tends to be more of a linear thinker, whereas a person who has ADHD tends to be more of a, you know, kind of a divergent tangential type thinker. And also people who have ADHD are often very um, creative in some way or another. You know, they can be creative in terms of problem solving, coming up with ideas, brainstorming. Um, They also can be very um, creative in terms of the arts. Um, So, and they're just great at coming up with ideas that no one else ever thought of. You know, and those are not things that the school system is really searching for. So help helping somebody with ADHD who maybe has recently been diagnosed, recognize that ability that they have and recognize how they can use that in a work situation or school situation. Yeah. While simultaneously advocating for themselves to somehow fit successfully into that neurotypical system. Right. The neurotypical world, basically. Yeah. 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 That broke my heart that he, that that boy felt that way um, because, and maybe it's just age, right? So I, I found out that I was, you know, I, I got the answer to all of my questions when I was 46. And so I, I, my, you know, I'm just, I just have more life experience and I'm more, mature, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> so I was able to like kind of go back and and hug the 20-year-old version of me that, you know, didn't understand. And and he is that 20-year-old version of himself. And so he doesn't he just has what other people are telling him. Um so I guess that's I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but I like, but I just makes me think of when you've been diagnosed, finding people who really support you and recognizing your strengths. And, you know, and following your strengths, following your talents, finding a work environment or a school environment that is willing and open to, you know, supporting you as a neurodivergent thinker with an ADHD brain or an ASD brain, then, you know, that, that would, I imagine, just lead to a better experience like I'm having, you know, the fact that the work that I do is very well suited for me. Yeah, yeah. And I think people who have ADHD are especially well suited to professions where there's always something new to learn. There's always some yeah. new problem to solve. There's always a new person to talk to, mm-hmm. you know, and that and they're really great at engaging in all of those new things that are coming at them and yeah. love usually love learning new things. Yeah, which I think is a really cool. It is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I was just listening to Ned Hallowell. He was on a 
on a podcast that I really enjoyed listening to with a woman called Kate. I can't remember her last name, but she's a, a British woman who has a podcast called the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. And, and she interviewed him on there. And he was talking about, and I'm sure he's talked about this and other things. I just happened to hear it on there. But he was talking about how important it is for people with ADHD to to, to uh, do things that, that they're really interested in and, and find a job that they are good at because it's something that they're good at or because it's something that they're interested in and, and to break free from these like preconceived notions that society has like, oh, you need to become this or that or maybe your parents' expectation or, or your social circle or whatever. And, and it's just another, another, op, op, another situation where a person has to say like, Hey, I might not do things the same as everybody else. Absolutely. Right. And doing things diff- in a different way doesn't mean you're doing things in a worse way. Mm, I like that. Right. Different isn't yeah. worse. It's just, yeah, different. it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And you know, often I'll tell my clients who have ADHD that it's important to work with it rather than against it. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't fight it and feel like I have to do everything the way, exactly the way that a neurotypical person does it, or I'm not successful. Yeah. Do it in a way that works for you and your own particular brain. And that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, I have a friend who has ADHD and, and so we were, we've just been talking a lot lately and, and we, we were talking about how, um, how it's it's so fun talking with another person who has ADHD because you can get really tangential and tangential and come right back and the other person can just follow right along. I had a client this morning. She's like, sorry, I'm all over the place. I'm like, don't worry. I'm, I gotcha. <laughs> Got to take a lot of notes as you're going. Cause otherwise I'll forget what you say, but <laughs> I'm following you. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that do, do your do you, do you see in your clients a desire to connect with other people who have ADHD or to find a social support that way? You know, I think it's interesting that you're bringing that up because um, I ha- certainly have noticed that a lot of my clients who have ADHD do tend to have friends who have ADHD and sometimes even spouses, but the spouses can go either way. Sometimes they have ADHD and sometimes they want to be with somebody who's very organized, right? Yeah. You know, like they want to be with a really neurotypical person. Yeah, balance them out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But they do tend to really, you know, kind of enjoy that bouncing around. Yeah. Conversationally that happens yeah. when two people have ADHD. It's an interesting phenomenon. It's fun. We're fun people. Well, yeah, I mean, people who have ADHD tend to be full of life. And, you know, it's really, and spontaneous, and have lots of interesting things to say. And, you know, that's cool. That's a good friend. <laughs> Something that uh, that I've been thinking about lately is the anxiety that comes along with ADHD and how, for me, realizing how connected they were was so freeing and it's truly incredible how much less anxiety I am experiencing now. And I remember you said that you said to, you often encourage people to um, explore the ADHD diagnosis when they have, when they have anxiety. And and I, I really 
can speak to that. It made a really big difference for me. And then I think back to my childhood and I remember I went to the summer camp and they gave away awards at the end of the summer and the award that I got, which I was 12 and now looking back on it, oh God, my poor 12 year old self, the award they gave me was the what if award. And because I always used to say, well, what if, what if this happens? What if that happens? I was really Aww. anxious and it, nobody said like, wait a second, why is she wondering all the time? What if, and yeah. now I realize it's because my brain was thinking of all the things, all the things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, so when I realized that I was in the car today while I was driving and I was like, oh, so I went back to my 12 year old self and it's, it's okay we get it now. (laughs) Yeah. So that's been, that's been like a really nice experience that I've had is being able to go back and just kind of forgive myself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it does take a while to kind of turn over all the things that happened that were related to the ADHD Mm -hmm. and put it all in context, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, and you know, so it's been, like nine months since we talked. So nine months of me like really exploring that. And, um, and it's, I, th- I think out of the whole experience, I think that is probably the most impactful is being able to explain a lot of things and, and really forgive myself because I held on for so long that, that I was just bad at, yeah. all those things and, and internalized so much of it. And I, and I, but I was really good at masking it even to myself. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been like incredible, but for sure need a therapist. <laughs> like, I don't think I would have been able to do that all on my own. I wouldn't, I would have been more afraid to go there without the support of a therapist, you know, like walking me through it because it's been, it's been hard. And it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of advantages that can come to having a therapist who's knowledgeable about ADHD, right? Yeah. Because they can help you sort through those issues from the past and gain a different perspective on it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they can provide you with a lot of information about ADHD and, you know, how the brain works when a person has ADHD and what their common struggles are or what their differences are. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's really useful too. And it can help you work on coping skills if there's mm-hmm. things that you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, what, before we go, what kind of it, like, what's your top advice that you give to people, right? You know, when they, when they come to this realization, like, oh, okay, this is why. Well, I, I think it's the case with any, um, you know, cognitive or emotional difference that a person may have in that it's, you know, knowledge is power, right? Yeah. And so the more a person understands themselves, the more they understand how their brain is working, the more they've understand how ADHD has affected their life and affected how they feel about themselves and their emotions, you know, then that really helps them figure out how to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And that might take a while and might take a lot of hard work, probably some tears. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Jan. 
I will be forever eternally grateful to you <laughs> for taking the time and for being so um, supportive. And, and I really hope that anyone listening um, can can find a Jan Willer in their lives <laughs> to, you know, to kind of walk them through this whole like exploration of um, a possible ADHD diagnosis. Oh, I just like I like you heard me just say, I am just so grateful for this diagnosis now at age 46. And I'm sad that there was not as much education and understanding about ADHD back when I was a kid so that me and other people like me could have gotten help earlier. And mom, I know you're listening. I just want you to know that I place absolutely no blame at all on you or dad or on my teachers or the other adults in my childhood. They're just wasn't the knowledge, the awareness and understanding that we have today. And I know there are people out there, many of them women like me, who were masking their symptoms with coping skills. They were not so that were not so outwardly noticeable to others and didn't have any catastrophic consequences. But they were slowly turning them, us, inside into people who struggle to find confidence and believe in themselves. So I am really hopeful for myself and everyone else out there who can relate to any of what I've shared today. If you can relate, please reach out, ask for help, ask the questions. It's scary, but you got to do it. I made an appointment, uh, like I said uh, before, with a neurologist to learn about my migraines and the connection with ADHD. And I also made an appointment with a more affordable uh, psychiatrist who does um, full neuropsych reports for less than the typical cost. I'm very excited about that. And, you know, as Jan said, knowledge is power. So I'm taking my brain health into my own hands and learning as much as I can. And I really hope that you're able to do that for yourself as well. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that one of our main goals is to hopefully help someone somewhere who is struggling with an aspect or maybe many aspects of their executive function skills. Well, this episode is here to maybe help that person find freedom from their frustrating past by finding the courage to get tested, to ask questions, learn about medication and strategies that truly can make a huge difference. It was hard and kind of weird to put myself out there for this episode. My colleagues and Jan both asked me if I was okay with being in that vulnerable position. But I thought about all the people who might be able to relate, who might not know where to start, and who might find some inspiration and maybe some bravery in my story. I also figured if Katie Couric, Jimmy Kimmel, and Ryan Reynolds can all share their colonoscopy experiences on TV, I can share my ADHD story with you on Focus Forward. And that is our show for today. If you know anyone who might want to hear all this or maybe needs to hear all this, please share this episode with them. You can reach out to me at podcast at beyondbooksmart.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. Please subscribe to Focus Forward on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give us a boost by giving us a five-star rating. We'll love you for it. Sign up for our newsletter at beyondbooksmart.com slash podcast. We'll let you know when new episodes drop and we'll share information related to the topic. Thanks for listening, everyone.